Hey folks, welcome in. It's Ant Waveland, Chicago Cubs podcast here at The Athletic. I am Brett Taylor, joined by Sahadev Sharma, which is not interesting at all because we are also joined not by Patrick Mooney this time. Also not interesting. I'm kidding. I love you guys. Uh, but we've got a very special guest today. It's Doug Glanville joining us. Thank you so much, Doug, for taking the time. Of course, folks know him, former player with the Cubs and Phillies uh, at Rangers briefly, too, right? Yes. Uh, and, yeah. uh, of course, he's got a podcast here at The Athletic and baseball analyst on various platforms. Uh, he's all over the place. Uh, so, yeah, man, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's great. I have to confess here at the outset, I mean, I'm like completely telling on myself unnecessarily, but it's kind of funny. So when our producer, Adam, was lining you up, Doug, uh, I was talking to Sahadev about um, the podcast you do with Jason Stark. And it's called Starkville, right? So obligatory plug. Like this is this is useful because I get to plug you guys and tell everyone, dudes, check out their podcast. It's great. Uh, but like an idiot, I was talking about how, you know, it's called Starkville which is clever, sounds like a, a city name. Um, well, like an idiot, I just thought it was like Stark, like a city, you know, like Stark City. And it took um, Sahadev pointing out that I'm an idiot, that the Ville in Starkville, of course, is because your last name ends in Ville. So, yeah, this is so, so, you know, we're setting you up here appropriately here at the top for what you're getting into with this podcast that might not be the brightest um, crew to speak to. Well, well, originally we had uh, a lot of Game of Thrones fans were checking us out because of the the Stark, the House of Stark. So (laughs) it's all good. You know, we we left it ambiguous enough. uh, You never know who you might capture. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, commenters you know, like coming in for Game of Thrones analysis <laughs> and getting baseball knowledge. I like it. <laughs> they, they just want to eviscerate you about the final two seasons. Uh, for any, you know, game, a little crossover content there was rather disappointing. So anyway, uh, obviously, Doug is not here to talk about Game of Thrones. Sorry to disappoint. Uh, nor is here necessarily to talk about me being an idiot, but he is here to talk with us uh, very graciously about the baseball season that is currently on pause and about some other topics that, um, you know, I think I want to say that um, a huge compliment to you, Doug, and this is just me as a fan and a reader and observer of media. um, I find consistently that you have a way as an analyst um, and it's not just because you used to play, but somehow you observe things from a perspective that very often I don't consider. And I find that whenever I am reading anything you've written or listening to something that you've discussed, um, it, it just tees up for me so many different ways of considering an issue that I hadn't before, whether I agree with you or not. And just sort of like, oh, I really hadn't thought about it that way. And we're going to get into a couple of those today. But I just wanted to say, you know, big credit to you that I think a lot of people notice that that's a that is a unique skill that you have, that um, you just have a way of kind of putting things in a way that 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 folks maybe hadn't considered. So just just a little love right there. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And uh, it it kind of goes back. My early writing days started by uh, writing a column for ESPN.com and I ended up doing a version of it 
in a more condensed way for the New York Times. And, and the thing that was interesting is when I tried to write or, you know, sort of pitch to do more for the New York Times, I realized like, wait a minute, you know, I, I didn't study journalism. I, you know, I had great English teachers in high school, but I, I just started, I started to realize like, wait a minute, what am I getting into here? Uh, so I realized that I had to figure out a way to communicate uh, that sort of human interest component where uh, distilling experiences and in an accessible way. And, and that was something that came from growing up in Teaneck, New Jersey, where we had so much diversity and different kinds of people working together. I started to learn how to think and communicate in different ways to different people. And, and I was so honored to hear that the feedback I was getting from, you know, people who've read in different components of my media work had received it in that way. Uh, so I, I always appreciate hearing that because I, I always hope to kind of bring people together around it, or as you mentioned, consider different perspectives. So, uh, you know, great to hear that. Yeah. And that does tie directly to one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about. And it's so to set it up, I suppose, you know, we're recording here on Tuesday afternoon and uh, it's obligatory to mention that these days because the world changes so rapidly. But there is a um, I guess you'd say a percolating sense of optimism uh, that there is likely to be some version of a baseball season this year. And I think we all recognize that it is not going to necessarily look um, immediately familiar to us with what baseball um, typically looks like. But it, it's, it's likely to be kind of a, well, if, if we want to play, it's the best version of what we can get. And you uh, wrote recently at ESPN about the impact of fans at, uh, at the ballpark. And it's something that is necessarily a, a big part of the conversation about what this year can and cannot be. Um, I think that people long ago started talking about the 2020 baseball season in a way that um, it, it kind of forewent the thought that, oh, we can have these big crowds back at some point this year. And although the conversation has shifted a little bit in the last few days to like maybe end a year, we could have partial crowds. Um, the, the point is it was kind of a almost a, a quickly foregone conclusion that like, hey, if baseball's going to happen this year, it's going to be without fans. And a lot of folks, uh, myself included, kind of went with that, that this idea that, look, uh, we can have baseball but we got to have it without fans and that's better than nothing. So it's not even worth dwelling on the consideration of like, what are we losing by not having fans? Cause like the game will still be on TV. It'll look great. We can talk about it, something to do, et cetera, et cetera. And then you wrote this piece at ESPN that I highly recommend people check out. And it, you know, it just kind of reframed that for me a little bit, not, no, not in a way that I would necessarily say, okay, you know what? Let's not do a season until we can have fans. But what I think I hadn't been giving enough credence to is the way that that mere presence of that connection between the players and the game on the field and the fans in the stands and the relationships that exist, the way that it actually impacts what even the TV viewer is seeing and, and the importance of this idea that baseball can be part of the healing process and coming together. And it's like, is that really as fair to say if we don't have fans in the stands and so I thought that was a very interesting component of the conversation and I'm curious now as um, the world continues to evolve 
the optimism is coming that some version of the season, fan or no, is going to be coming. I'm wondering how you stand as we sit here today on that topic. Like, does it still kind of tug at you a little bit to think that there will be baseball, but it, it'll be fan free? And um, or is that just sort of the, the best of a bad situation? Yeah, I mean, it still tugs at me. And but I, I recognize, you know, the, the pragmatic side says, yes, we uh, for in order to have any baseball, certainly the best chance to have some baseball, it you have to weigh having no fans. I mean, and we're, I guess there's examples now internationally where, you know, some leagues, you know, are, are kicking around and starting up and and it's it's sort of the example of okay well we can play baseball without fans it sort of takes me back to when i played high school right there was nobody in the stands in my high school games or, or really college for the most part so uh so i do understand that you, you still have a game and there are t you know millions of supporters that would watch on television and on the internet in different ways that they engage through apps and so on uh, but i did want to just express when i wrote that piece about what you what you're missing you know that not so much like you said oh this is the way it only can be or should be but there is something missing and the story i was trying to tell is one about a player during my career when i was going through a lot with my father was chronically ill for what led to be about three years between cancer uh strokes a history of strokes and and uh, he, you know, he was just going through a lot and he was constantly in the, in the emergency room or the hospital. And at that time, after three years of this, by 2002, I was 32 years old, 31, 32 years old, getting on the latter part of my career, clearly. And I was struggling. I was, I was having a horrible season. And I, I was a starter pretty much my whole career. And this is where I lost my starting job and I was hitting terribly. And uh, Larry Boa at one point you know, pulled me aside. He's like, look, you know, you know, I'm going to sit you for a while. And, and I'd never really heard those words since I, you know, for a long time, I have to go back to, I don't even know when. And uh, so I went to visit my father after my birthday on the road. We were in St. Louis. We came back, had a day off and I drove up to Jersey from Philly to, to check on my dad who was in the hospital. And, you know, it was horrible and I could tell things were worse than they were. But driving back home or back to Philadelphia, I got pulled over by a New Jersey state trooper. And the state trooper, although I was speeding and oblivious, he, he still gave me a ticket. But he said to me, he's like, I know who you are. And I just want you to know your value to our community is way more than valuable than your batting average. It was something along those lines. And I was a fan. That was someone who loved baseball. He knew enough to also ask about the collective bargaining we were dealing with. <laughs> and it, it, it literally changed my mindset. One fan, one moment. And when you think about circumstances that we're dealing with now, where you're looking for that connection, right? What sport can bring at its best and how much it flows through all of us as fans and as people who love the game or around the sport, uh, where you really can't separate, you know, major league player from fan who's, you know, season ticket holder, like we're all in this together. And we all need and, and are just itching for that connection. Uh, and no better way to do that through something you love and you share. And, and so when you kind of bring it together, that opportunity uh, I, I think back to 9-11 when we came back and what that meant. Uh, it, it meant so much that was 
un, you know, you could not quantify, right? Unquantifiable. And that qualitative experience and that, that relationship is what you get from those fans. And, and because, yeah, players, you, you get frustrated, you get booed, whatever happens, but you'd never forget that, uh, that you have this community around you. And no matter how frustrating or the standards you're held to or your fantasy team, you've made somebody's fantasy team stink or whatever it is, <laughs> you, you come back to the richness of that experience. And, and I know as a player, I was always a fan. It never changed because I was facing Randy Johnson or I was always a fan. Every time I walked into a stadium, it was a cathedral. Every time I got on, in the batter's box at whatever place or against whatever pitcher, I knew that I was in, I, it was in a surreal experience. And, and by the way, even if you are the greatest player and you don't even think about those things, you look around you and you see coaches that were players you watched growing up. I mean, I, I, you know, I remember catching the first pitch of a game, the ceremonial first pitch, from Steve Carlton. I mean, it was like I had imitated his pitching motion as a kid, and I got to watch it as a catcher. It, it was unbelievable. That was like one of the greatest highlights of that season. Uh, so... You know, so that connection is is there for all players, and and so when you have the opportunity to come back from something so stressful and so intense together, that that is always going to have so much more power. Uh, but given the choice of not playing at all, of course we're going to take a little bit of baseball over none, and because you still may have that moment, it may not be in 2020, but you're one day going to have that moment where you're there together and you can celebrate at that. Time. Time. Uh, but I've had so many experiences with fans. I can't even list them about moments I've had that they've said something or wrote me a letter. Uh, and every player has these stories where they reset and they just sort of shifted and, and put you back into a certain place. And I, by the way, after I got that ticket, I hit 333, 337 the rest of the way. <laughs> and I closed. Yeah, it was like I was in a zone. I was like, it's like a burden was gone. And I got my starting job back for a little bit. And last game of the season, I got my 1,000th hit of my career. Uh, and actually, it was the day my father passed away at, uh, at 7.15 p.m. right after the game. So so it's it's meant a lot. And, uh, and one other quick point is when I got the game-winning hit, ultimately in game three of the NLCS for the Cubs in 2003, uh, the question that you always get is, hey, was that the biggest hit of your career? Because it makes sense, right? You're on the biggest stage and the biggest game that you've been part of in a playoff component at Major League Baseball. But really what was big about that moment wasn't because of the stage. It was because of all the things that personally I had overcome and experienced to get there, right? The rehab and torn hamstring, my father's mm -hmm. illness, uh, just the, the, the long lineage that every player has to a moment. And when we, and we step away from the oversimplification of moments and really see that collective, that's where fans come in so powerfully. And uh, so I, I look forward to, you know, when we have that opportunity again. Uh, Doug, as I read your piece, uh, it struck me that you were talking, we wouldn't have realized all these things about your moments with fans uh, unless you share them with us. But there are so many moments that I guess I, I was, I'm just so ready for baseball to come back that I didn't even think about what we're missing without fans. And the first player that came to mind was Javi Baez. And, and I thought about your time, your time in uh, Puerto Rico and how you said the fans there, it became like a family and, and it really helped you become a better player and they really motivated you. And I think of, think of players like Javi who feed off the fans and not only 
does he feed off the fans? The fans feed off him. And I wonder how different is that going to be to be to watch a player that I feel like half the experience of it is how how the fans go crazy. Is it enough to just for him for that energy to feed the teammates and and for him to be fed by their energy? Or is there going to be something that we're going to miss from a player like that? I mean, yeah, that's a great point because uh, there's no question. I mean, Javi Baez is the ultimate showman, and, and El Mago, you know, he's he's the magician, and and the magic that he creates and the awe and the sleight of hand, you know, that's because you have an audience, right, of, of responding to him, and it would be very different for him to play in these, you know, possibly potentially these empty ballparks. Uh, I'm sure he goes back to when he was eight. I'm sure there were empty ballparks, but he is so yeah. connected to the fans and so connected to the show and and the, just the sheer enjoyment of the sport. Uh, so it's it's going to be different. Now, look, if this let's just say baseball comes back in July and you pay the whole season like that, players will adapt. They'll they'll get used to this and they'll find other ways, they'll, you know, Twitter, Facebook, you know, whatever they do, post games will be different. They'll find ways to keep the the fan engagement in a different kind of way, but it won't be that real time way that you feed off. I mean, you can watch on TV, but when you're watching on TV and there's 60,000 people at the game, it's it's different, right? It's a it's a whole other experience. And uh, so there's no question that as a player, especially those that have that certain kind of personality, will uh, will miss that. And uh, he's going to have to, his game's going to be a little bit different, but I'm sure he'll find something. He'll have his banter with, you know, Francisco Lindor or something, you know, just to, to keep it spicy. Well, so I'm curious, Doug, then, you know, in a world, let's, let's imagine for a moment that that is the version that, that plays out. And in a way, it's like not ideal. Like we said, no fans, but in another way is ideal because it's, we still don't know if it's even going to be possible to play games at all. But I'm curious, is there any aspect of if, if that is what baseball must be this year, you know, no fans, schedule ramifications. Um, you know, we've talked about all of the different potentially experimental things that, that baseball will be able to or need to do to pull it off. Is there any aspect of that that you as an analyst or even just as a fan think, okay, well, you know, not a great um, situation to have to play baseball in this way, but I am kind of looking forward to X, you know, whether it's that, maybe a little more banter on the field that we can pick up as, as fans or yeah. Is there any, any part that kind of sticks out to you that might be particularly compelling this year? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in, and I've always been interested in sort of the social component of sports and baseball in particular. Uh, I'm curious what the players will do, whether it's the way they interact with each other. Uh, it's the access they might provide during the game or after the game that might be different. Uh, you know, a certain level of uh, appreciation on what the game may do to continue to help our communities recover, uh, because that's a challenge for baseball. In you know, in this particular case, because it's the sport that didn't start yet, uh, the idea of well, what what can we do as a sport to continue to raise awareness, keep people safe? Because if you are playing without fans, it's clear that we're still dealing with this on a certain level. And how are they going to engage on on that and still be inspiring and hopeful? And, and help educate us more and more as they've, you know, kind of in some ways are in this experiment if they are playing. So there's there's a lot there that I think could be really compelling um, from an access point. And 
uh, and just you know, how the games will be played with, without the you know potentially without the fans in the in the game or how the players will interact with each other. Will you see each other as more brethren, like family, even though that's your opponent? Because you're going through something extremely unique. I mean, you you, you think about how, for example, with 9/11. Oh yeah, we were trying to beat the Braves. We, I was in Atlanta when this happened. And we were trying to beat the Braves, but then all of a sudden that all melts away and you become one family. Uh, that, that is sort of the fraternal order, so to speak, of the players. Uh, and there's some things that transcend that rivalry where the sport becomes bigger and your connection to other players becomes bigger. So uh, I, I see a lot of great potential there of, of showcasing the community of baseball and, and how it can serve in, in great ways for our for our fans and our and our sport, so uh, that I'll be watching that really closely. But it's going to be different, regardless of you know, when this game comes back. It's going to be different and a huge adjustment, and a lot of things are going to have to be tried and tried in a new way. And that innovation is exciting in some ways. Yeah, I think that's probably the best attitude any of us can have about this right now is that simultaneous recognition that it is a you know, an incredibly challenging time at a national level and, and um, baseball and the experience of it is not the most important thing that we are facing as a nation, but it is at some point going to provide an opportunity to um, to be part of the, the, the process of turning the page. And, and that will, like we said, mean that it's going to look different than what we're used to, but that too can be interesting. And I don't think there's anything wrong with um, you know, again, simultaneously acknowledging the seriousness of what we're going through, but then also allowing yourself to be like excited about the possibility. And so, you know, to, to folks, I don't know, I, I feel, I feel <laughs> almost an obligation that, um, it's okay to, to be excited about things, you know, like we are getting to that point where it's, you can still have that care and that seriousness and, we're all doing our part, but you know, we can, we can start to have a little optimism and, and happiness and, and also do things like uh, talk about, you know, baseball rulings and decisions that have absolutely nothing to do with COVID-19. And I think it was interesting that the decision on the Boston Red Sox, um, I don't know, mini, mini sign stealing scandal. I don't, I don't know where we're right. landing on that, but <laughs> right. I, I think it's, right. <laughs> it's interesting that that, came down um, just recently at a time where, you know, there is no baseball happening. It's weird to be like, okay, but we're going to, you know, with this decision, act as though everything is normal, um, including, you know, punishments that are tethered to this season. And um, but in a way, like I said, it's you kind of it's fair to start approaching some things normally. And, um, you know, I, I will leave it to folks to check out your guys's podcast on that topic from a sort of substantive baseball perspective um, because it's fantastic. And I know that there's a lot of interesting discourse about, like I said, the differences between what the Red Sox did and what the Astros did, and then ultimately how major league baseball treated those circumstances. But what, what that topic ended up leading me back to in a way that I was not expecting is that you'd actually written something back in March, I believe on um, sign stealing issues using electronic technology to steal signs in this era and the unfair advantage that it provides certain players against other players. 
and how that bears a relationship, at least narratively in, in terms of how we want to talk about cheating um, to the steroid era. And that specifically got me thinking, again, this is just, it's a very unique and admirable skill. I'm a writer also, and, and I'm like, damn, this guy just does this so well. You know, you wrote this piece and it got me thinking in a very different way about how I, as a fan and an observer and a guy who was, you know, I was a, a teenager at the height of the steroid era and um, was an obsessive Sammy Sosa fan. And I now look back at that era as someone, you know, I'm pragmatic about what happened. Um, but I, I don't know, I almost want to excuse myself to, to be okay with feeling a relationship again with that time and be like, ah, you know, a lot of guys were cheating, it sucks, they're breaking the rules, they kind of dampened this era for so many reasons, but you know what, I just want to go back and enjoy it again, I just want to watch highlights and enjoy it, and, you know, what you wrote is not contrary to that in any way, I'm not putting words in your mouth in that respect, but what you got me thinking about is how much I fail to acknowledge um, that as much as I might want to move on as a fan, there were guys like you that played their careers pretty much entirely within the steroid era, played clean, and necessarily suffered because of it. And, you know, I don't know that you, again, I don't think you're looking for any sympathy in that regard, but it's a perspective that I think too few of us um, talk about or think about because we get so focused on the numbers, the steroid allegations, the Hall of Fame, the records, all these things. And it's like, well, we should also consider that there were a lot of guys that were very, very unfairly impacted by the era in which they played. And so, um, you know, I really appreciated that you provide that perspective. And I think for folks who haven't read it, I just think it'd be interesting to hear from you about how you are thinking about sign stealing as a, a way that players are essentially cheating against each other and harming each other. But that being something very, very fundamentally different than what was happening, uh, you know, at the height of the PED era. Yeah, I, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think the way to, you know, think about what I was, you know, going, going over in my mind when I wrote that piece was really, it was a little bit of a bifurcation, right? The, the idea that, okay, sign stealing you know you have this uh, obviously the astros you know wore the crown of this in 2017 literally and figuratively and you know so you have a championship that's that's tainted effectively right you have a championship uh you know through through these methods that were deemed illegal by the game and you've acquired the the, the biggest spoil the spoils of the game the greatest level that you could possibly seek as any player in Major League Baseball. So they won a championship through these means. And so, of course, that has a certain gravity to it because it's like, well, what else is there? You win the championship and it was done in this way, then what other violation can there be? But when you start to walk back on a little bit more individual level and you start to look at it and start bringing in PEDs, for example, into the picture, uh, I, I wanted to talk about really rolling out my career and as you mentioned, through the steroid era and show all these different stops and moments through a career where it had an impact. 
And, and that is a different uh, lens to look at it because it's like, okay, Astros did this in the season, boom, they won the championship. Oh, that's terrible. Here we go. But then the protracted long-term nature of steroids and what it actually did to the numbers of the game, for example, uh, has a different kind of impact. So I'll give you an example. Uh, and the way I walk through it in the article is this. As a player, you, when you arrive at the major league level, the clock starts ticking. And, and the clock, it's not just a time chronological, it's also a valuation. <laughs> There's sort of a counter. And when you're compared, when you talk about salary, arbitration, free agency, you're compared constantly with an opponent. And that opponent may be in the other dugout, but it also could be someone wearing the same uniform who you're trying to beat out for the center field job, me versus Lenny Dykstra or Marlon Byrd or whoever, right? So yeah, your teammates, you understand that that's the most important thing and it's important, but you also recognize that you, you wanna be the starter. You, you wanna earn that starting job. So you're compared constantly with people uh, who are at your position, and this is what arbitration is about or getting, your, getting paid in this game. What are your numbers? What position did you play? And how long have you been in the league, right? Those are kind of the metrics. And that determines where you are kind of slotted in in your value. Well, what does steroids do to that? It completely blows it out of the water. Because, for example, in my case, if I'm a center fielder who hit 10 home runs a year and was a starter, and then all of a sudden the expectation that starters had to hit 35, then I have a career problem immediately. And steroids took those numbers and shifted them and inflated them to a place that became unachievable for certain players just physically by who they are, right? So it created an entirely artificial threshold. And, and that is how you're compared. And not only just because of what you're going to get paid, but whether you have a job. If I'm competing against a center fielder in spring training that hits 30 home runs a year, and that's the new standard by which center fielders are evaluated, then my career is over. So let's compare that to sign stealing. Okay, fine. Uh, let's just say the or the Astros. Let's say the the only team that that did this, which is probably unlikely, but let's just say that, right? All right, you 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 might be even in their division, and you play them to X times, you know, 15, 17 times, nineteen times, and maybe only if they did this at home, it's half of those games. All right, so if you're a hitter, you face, you know, okay, doesn't necessarily matter because once again, they're they weren't stealing signs for you. But your pitcher, okay, you're going to be more upset about that clearly because they beat up on you. But how often did you play the Astros in 162 game seasons, you as a pitcher? So, of course, it's horrible in a collective, but individually, the impact is not, it's not going to completely, and, and you know, I'm putting Mike uh, uh, Bolsinger a little bit on the side because I support his case. But I think the idea that the repetitive nature of competing against inflated, num inflated numbers every single year, every single day to determine your viability in the game and your ability to advance in the career is a very different discussion than someone beating you that one particular game because they had your signs. And, and so, that, so looking at the individual walk and where did this touch me all through my career? When I was trying to get a job as a starter, when I became a starter and someone's trying to take my job, when I became a free agent and I'm competing against all these guys with 30 home runs or whatever it is. And not saying every 30 home run guy had was on the juice, but there was obviously a significant number of people out there. So that that's a very different. So selfishly and individually, when you look at the impact to a player down to that level, that's a very different uh, equation than it is when you're looking at uh, stealing signs. And so, yes, the Astros 
defiled the game, you know, and the integrity of the game. And that is big in its own way, but it's, it's, it's different. And, and yes, the fans kind of, you know, deal with the fallout of all those things and the questioning of the authenticity of the game regardless. But on one hand, as a player, it's a very different approach because for me, I would take playing the Astros, whatever, 10, five, seven, 10 times a year uh, and deal with that nonsense than competing against guys every day that I'm trying to not only compete for my position or I'm facing guys throwing 100 miles an hour at 40 years old. I'll take the sign stealers every day of the week and twice on Sundays because I feel like selfishly, my chance to stay in the game is greater. Pitchers may have a little different equation, but I still think it's uh, advantage uh, advantage sign stealing. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, that that's just sort of where I came down. And I just wanted to share that experience through very real personal examples of what hit my career at different moments. Doug, I'm, I'm wondering if you've had a chance to ever talk to any PED users about this perspective. I know a lot, I mean, obviously a lot still haven't fully admitted what they did, but I, I feel like there are plenty of former players who who kind of are willing to open up about that era of their lives of their careers have you talked to any whether it be a former teammate or you know someone you competed against and said you know this is why this era frustrates me more than anything else uh, that that may have happened that was whatever you know against the rules or shady business this is what bothers me most about this era yeah i mean it, it's a it was sort of a dirty little secret i guess you know there was a sort of a group that did their thing and it wasn't talked about at least in my locker rooms that i was in openly you always had suspicions or maybe uh and you know i don't know about the level of regret for those players because one thing that is common between the two examples sign stealing and pds is you kind of hear this um com you know competitive paranoia you hear phrases like that because what people are saying uh at least the code that i see in that is okay Everybody was doing something or, you know, most people or teams were doing something. And to get a leg up, we just got better at it. We, we cheated a little bit better. We found ways to beat them at their own game that they were really actually intending to do. Right. So so if you're a player in the, in the PED era, you're saying, well, you know what? All these center fielders were doing it or all these guys or so many guys were doing. It. I don't even know who, but I got so paranoid about it. I was so worried about it that I just felt like I had to do it to keep up. And that's sort of a reasonable, logical conclusion if you see your, your job security going out the window. So that blurs the lines a lot about, oh, I don't know who's telling us what, but they, you're making decisions not necessarily on direct hard evidence as much as you're, you're assuming what the culture is and the numbers of people who are engaging in that culture. So, it, you know, I, so I see how players, you know, I've written a lot about understanding how players make that choice and understanding even with the sign stealing how someone could get, quote unquote, caught up in it. I, I get that from the cultural silence that's expected in the code that isn't that defines locker rooms. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I, I do get that, which is why Mike Fires was so unusual, right? He he went out there mm -hmm. and then keep in mind the sign stealing. There's no way that would have kept under wraps. There's no way that would have stayed like steroids lasted forever. It's probably still going, right? But there's no way sign stealing would have kept up the way it was as it started because first of all pitchers are nothing but doormats in that situation right what do, what do they have to get out of it nothing even the astros pitchers had to be uncomfortable because they're like this isn't helping me 
I mean, and, and keep in mind, you're not just an astro, you're a pitcher. You have a profession that you have to keep and maintain integrity. And the fidelity of your, your, your arguments around why you exist as a pitcher, why you're uh, a valuable part of this game, relies on a certain level of equity and balance in the game. And so you have a huge problem when you're undermining your profession for the benefit of your one team. That cannot be sustained. And eventually people get traded and they have a conscience and all these things and they go, no, no, this, because you're completely undermining the entire exchange between batter and pitcher. That was, there was no way that was going to continue. Uh, even if Manfred or whoever did nothing, the, the players, the pitchers that got traded, and all, they would they would just been like, no, there, there's no way. Uh, but but PDs just kept going. She just kept going, <laughs> kept going. And so uh, that sign stealing, the way it stood with the Astros, could not have possibly continued because no pitcher, uh, no group of pitchers, generation after generation, would have stayed silent forever. Well, and we're, we're going to leave it there and wrap, and it's sort of it makes for an interesting spot because it actually pairs in a weird way the two bigger conversations that we had today together. That in a world where uh, we have a season this year that's fan free, um, you know, the reaction to the Astros this year is is uh, obviously going to be fundamentally different than it would have been and i you know i'm not going to pass upon whether it's good or bad what's lost in that but it's it does add to the perspective that the fan relationship with the players um it, it does end up being such an important part of the game and you think about um the the little slice that we got at the start of spring training i mean a spring training game for god's sake jose altuve is booed mercilessly in his first appearance and it's um that's part of that ongoing communication between fans and not only individual players but sort of the sport at large um that's a part of, of what will be lost this year and that that is nobody's fault that's the virus's fault and will adjust accordingly but it does make for an interesting way that these I don't know. A lot of these conversations that seem so disparate end up coming back to the same place. And, you know, we want to thank you so much, Doug, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, just just a fantastic and thoughtful and interesting guy. And, you know, we're we're very grateful to have you and want to make sure that folks know um, that they can check you out on the Starkville podcast and see you all over analyzing and reading. Is there anything that you wanted to plug? Anything just for a second, to, you know, maybe a, a Cubs fan focused audience who yeah. might have an interest to be like, you know, you don't have to. I, yeah. I can I can keep blowing you up as much as necessary, <laughs> but want to give you that chance. No, no, I just I just want to thank the fans. You know, I I, I just want to thank the fans and what it's, um, you know, that relationship gave me so much. Uh, and you know, I mentioned the police officer, the state trooper, but there's so there's so many examples. And and also we mentioned these situations, sign stealing, PDs. The fans spoke. They spoke out. They didn't tolerate it. They kept the feet, their feet on the accelerator to, to raise the bar. That matters. That type of advocacy for the game matters. And every time that they spoke passionately about trying to make the game better, it makes a difference. It's not just to, to be the players and the owners and the you know, collective bargainly decided. The fans and their public, the public opinion is highly important in this. So I just say stay engaged, you know, love the game, continue to love the game. And I, I started as a draft pick of the Chicago Cubs. And 
I, I came of age through the Cubs and the Chicago family, and I will always remember that and be grateful for everything because the, the Cubs fans were so positive. We, we had a very difficult history without winning World Series, and yet every game, every series, they came out, they were positive. Uh, that was so eye-opening to me to see that energy in Chicago and, and just working on hope and positivity. And, and so that when the Cubs won in 03, I mean, I'm sorry, we got there in 03, not the World Series, but in 2016, that was so deserved because they were not fair weather fans. These were fans that uh, I think of personal experiences sticking by your side no matter what. So so um, all I can say is thank you. You know, thank you for, and the, it's a gift that keeps on giving. I still have memorabilia, memories, fan mail that I've kept, and I, I plan to continue to share it as I did in this article. Uh, so, um, you know, great appreciation for what they've done in my life and, I, and what I've seen them do for the game. Outstanding. That is Doug Glanville. Uh, I am Brett Taylor. The silent guy in the corner is Sahadev Sharma. Thank you folks so much for listening. This is On to Waveland. It's Cubs podcast here at The Athletic. You can always listen on The Athletic app or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a little bit of that uh, rate and review love. That would be swell. And want to thank you all so much for listening. And be safe out there. Take care. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank <laughs> you.